This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road. What a story this has been so far, and one that's been reduced to just a few lines in most history books. But this story, and the people who lived it, all contributed to the first permanent English colony in America, Jamestown. For years, I've been considering writing an historical fiction using Smith's life as the centerpiece. I began in modern-day London, with a young couple who find themselves browsing through an old antique shop on Portobello Road, and they find themselves drawn to a very old trunk propped up in a dusty corner of the shop. They open it and find it empty, but they notice that the bottom seems to be hollow, and now they sense that it might contain a hidden compartment. They ask the shop owner where the trunk came from, and he mentions that it was here when he purchased the shop. The one thing he can tell them is that it's very old, 16th or 17th century, based upon the methods of construction and the type of hinges used. Eventually they buy it and take it back to their apartment, opening the false bottom, and they're amazed to find a collection of priceless notes and artifacts from a long-forgotten time. And I'll share a little bit more at the conclusion of this episode. In this last episode, we'll cover Pocahontas' journey to England, where she meets the king and queen and attends some different functions, along with Ben Jonson's Christmas Mask, which was a play that was popular then, along with Shakespeare's. She also learns that John Smith is alive and well, which shocks and upsets her, as she's been told by all, including her husband, that Smith had died. The polluted air in London has created havoc with her system, though, and she's moved to a residence outside of town. We'll join Smith as he leaves England again for North America to explore, this time giving New England its name, and fighting pirates and privateers in 1614, long before the golden age of piracy. He becomes a French prisoner, but escapes, finally returning to England to write about it. The story ends with the massacres of the Jamestown colonists by Powhatan's brother Opie Kenkanoff in 1622, and Smith's death in England, and his legacy. And now, our final chapter of Captain John Smith, the real story of Captain Smith and Jamestown. Early in 1614, Sir Thomas Gates had returned to England and left the government of the colony to Sir Thomas Dale. An old soldier of the Netherlands, Dale was harsh in the enforcement of the law, but his strict rule, tempered by a hard-earned wisdom on the part of the Virginia Company, was beneficial, and under his government, the little commonwealth gained a sure foothold in America. Sir Thomas Dale did not live at Jamestown, but at a more recent plantation on the James River called Bermuda Hundred. Mr. Whitaker was minister at this place, 
and here lived John Rolfe and his wife Pocahontas. Dale, Whitaker, and Rolfe divided themselves assiduously to the task of instructing Pocahontas. She was taught the English language and especially educated in the Christian religion. Pocahontas, on her part, was eager to learn. Her husband and Sir Thomas Dale were probably planning to take her to England. One can imagine the training that Pocahontas went through to learn the formalities and refinements of civilized life, but her inclination had always been towards the English. She became so well-educated that she had no desire to return to her tribe, nor could well endure the society of her own nation. It is said that the true affection she constantly bore her husband was much, and if we may believe the quaint words of the old history, he, on the other hand, underwent great torment and pain out of his violent passion and tender solicitude for her. In other words, a mixed marriage between a white Englishman and an Indian was a rough deal back in those days. Sir Thomas Dale had been five years in Virginia when in 1616 he settled the affairs of the colony, Yep Yardley as deputy governor, and embarked for England. He took with him Mr. Rolfe, Pocahontas, Tomocomo, also known as Utamatomakan, one of Powhatan's chief men, who was married to Powhatan's daughter Matachana, and other Indians of both sexes. Tomocomo, who was considered among the Indians an understanding fellow, had been charged by Powhatan to count the people in England and give them an exact idea of their strength. It is said that Opie Kankanoff, who was rising into power among the Indians, also charged Tomocomo to observe whether the English had any trees or grain in their country. The Indian boy Namontak, whom Captain Newport had taken over, had seen hardly anything except London, and had reported great numbers of men in houses, but he made no mention of trees or cornfields. Opikankanov had a strong suspicion from the colonists' constant desire for corn and the shiploads of lumber which left the James River that England was destitute of these commodities. The vessel reached Plymouth on the 12th of June, 1616. On leaving the vessel, Tomokomo was prepared with a long stick and a knife ready to make a notch for every man he saw. He kept this up until his arithmetic failed him, as the story goes. In traveling by coach from Plymouth up to London, Tomokomo discovered that England did not lack in trees and grain fields. We can imagine the excitement that followed these travelers everywhere they went. They were all wonders, but especially was the Princess Pocahontas. The popular interest in her must have exceeded the usual desire to catch a sight of the King of England and his family. It was even debated, doubtless at the suggestion of the ever-zealous royal dunce, King James, whether Rolfe had not committed high treason in marrying the daughter of a foreign prince without permission of his sovereign. Pocahontas was now mother to a little son, Thomas Rolfe, whom she loved most dearly. Immediately on her arrival, the Virginia Company took measures for the maintenance of her and her child. Persons of great rank and quality took much notice of Pocahontas. She did not like the smoke of London and was moved to Brentford outside of the city. Unaccustomed as she was to the polluted air of a city, she had become the proverbial canary in the coal mine. In this year, Sir Walter Raleigh had been liberated after thirteen years of imprisonment and went around London renewing acquaintance with familiar objects and noting the changes that had been made. It is very probable that Sir Walter, the father of Virginia, took pains to see Pocahontas. 
Captain Smith was at this time between two voyages, and his stay in London was limited. He met Tomokomo, and they renewed old acquaintance. Captain Smith, said the Indian, Powhatan did bid me find you out, to show me your God, and the king and queen and prince you so much had told us of. Concerning God, said Smith, regarding the conversation, I told him the best I could. The king I heard he had seen, and the rest should see when he would. Tomokomo, however, denied having seen King James till Smith satisfied him that he had by the circumstances. Tomokomo immediately looked very melancholy and sad. He'd been expecting a lot more upon meeting the real king. He said to Smith, You gave Powhatan a white dog, which Powhatan fed as himself, but your king gave me nothing, and I'm better than your white dog. There was much curiosity to hear and see the behavior of Tomokomo, he being a real savage and untutored Indian. Samuel Purchase said of him, With this savage I've often conversed at my good friend's Master Dr. Goulstone, where he was a frequent guest, and where I have seen him sing and dance his diabolical measures. Captain Smith, in his words, desiring to return the courtesy that Pocahontas had extended him at Jamestown, had written the following letter to the Queen immediately upon hearing of the arrival of Pocahontas, and parts of it follow here. To the most high and virtuous princess, Queen Anne of Great Britain, most admired Queen, the love I bear my God, my King, and my country hath so oft emboldened me in the worst of extreme dangers, that now honesty doth constrain me to presume thus far beyond myself to present your majesty this short discourse. If ingratitude be a deadly poison to all honest virtues, I must be guilty of that crime if I should omit any means to be thankful. So it is that some ten years ago, being in Virginia, and taken prisoner by the power of Powhatan, their chief king, I received from this great savage exceeding great courtesy, especially from his son Nantiquas, the most manifest, comeliest, boldest spirit I ever saw in a savage, and his sister, Pocahontas, the king's most dear and well-beloved daughter, being but a child of twelve or thirteen years of age, whose compassionate, pitiful heart of desperate estate gave me much cause to respect her. I, being the first Christian this proud king and his grim attendants ever saw, and thus enthralled in their barbarous power, I cannot say that I felt the least occasion of want that was in the power of these mortal foes to prevent, notwithstanding all their threats. After some six weeks fetting among these savage courtiers, at the minute of my execution she hazarded the beating out of her own brains to save mine, and not only that, but so prevailed with her father that I was safely conducted to Jamestown, where I found about eight and thirty miserable, poor, and sick creatures to keep possession of all those large territories of Virginia. Such was the weakness of this poor commonwealth, as, had the savages not fed us, we directly would have starved. And this relief, most gracious queen, was commonly brought us by this lady, Pocahontas. Notwithstanding all these passages, when in constant fortune turned our peace to war, this tender virgin would still not spare to dare to visit us. And by her our jars have often appeased, and our wants still supplied. Captain Smith went to Brentford, with several others, to see Pocahontas. She saluted him modestly, and without a word turned around 
and obscured her face as not seeming well contented. Smith, with her husband and the other gentlemen, left her, in that humor, for several hours. The captain was disappointed, and repented having written the queen that she could speak English. But when the gentlemen returned, Pocahontas began to talk, and said that she remembered Captain Smith well, and the courtesies she had done for him. You did promise Powhatan, said Pocahontas, what was yours should be his, and he the like to you. You called him father, being in his land a stranger, and by the same reason so must I do to you. Captain Smith tried to excuse himself from this honor. Knowing the jealousy of the court, he durst not allow that title, because she was a king's daughter. Were you not afraid? said Pocahontas, with a look of determination. Were you not afraid to come into my father's country, and cause fear in him and all his people but me? And fear you here? I should call you father? I tell you then I will, and you shall call me child, and so will I be forever and ever your countryman. They did tell us always you were dead, and I knew no other till I came to Plymouth. Yet Powhatan did command Utamatomican to seek you and know the truth, because your countrymen will lie much. This deception played, it seems, upon the Indians, and to which Rolf must have been a party, is very strange. It has been conjectured by romancers that Pocahontas had really loved Smith, but there seems to be no reason to think anything more than that she felt a warm affection for him as a friend from her childhood. Pocahontas, it is said, had been so well instructed that she was become very formal and civil after our English manner. During his brief stay in London, Captain Smith made frequent visits to Pocahontas, accompanied by courtiers and other friends who wished to see the Indian lady. The gentlemen, said Smith, generally concluded that they did think God had a great hand in her conversion, and said that they had seen many English ladies worse favored, proportioned, and behavioured. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Pocahontas was presented at court, accompanied by Lady Delaware, both to the king and queen. Ben Jonson's Christmas mask was played at court on the 6th of January, 1617. Pocahontas and Tomokomo were present. The following notice of it is found in the letter of the day. On Twelfth Night there was a mask when the new-made Earl Buckingham and the Earl of Montgomery danced with the Queen. The Virginian woman, Pocahontas, and her father's counselor have been with the King and graciously used, and both she and her assistant were pleased at the mask. She is upon her return, though sore against her will, if the wind would about to send her away. Captain Samuel Argall was about to sail for Virginia as governor of the colony. Rolf and his wife must return to their home. Tomokomo must go back to tell Powhatan of his observations, but the other Indians were left in England 
to be educated. While Pocahontas was in England, her portrait was drawn and engraved. She is represented in the fashionable costume of the day. Beneath the picture were these words, Matoax Alz Rebecca, daughter to the mighty Prince Powhatan, Emperor of Atanoff, Cornock, Alz, Virginia, converted and baptized in the Christian faith and wife to the worshipful Mr. John Rolfe, aged 21, Anno Domini, 1616. Pocahontas, it is said, was unwilling to leave England. She was destined never to return to Virginia. She died at Gravesend on the eve of her departure for America, being about 22 years of age. The few words devoted in Smith's history to her death are quite characteristic of the time. It pleased God at Gravesend to take this young lady to his mercy, where she made not more sorrow for her unexpected death than joy to the beholders to hear and see her make so religious and godly an end. In the Paris Register at Gravesend is the following blundering entry, which could hardly have referred to any other than Pocahontas. 1616, May 2nd, Rebecca Roth, wife of Thomas Roth, gent, a Virginia lady born, here was buried in ye chancel. The child of Pocahontas was left in England in the care of Sir Louis Stukeley, and afterwards transferred to the care of his uncle, Mr. Henry. In other words, his father, John Rolfe, left him in England for his education. He was educated in England and afterwards returned to America. From him descended some of the most respectable families in Virginia. There is on record a petition signed by Pocahontas' son, Thomas Rolfe, and addressed to the authorities of the colony in 1641, praying to be allowed to go to the Indian country to visit his mother's sister, known among the white people as Cleopatra. Thomas Rolfe was never to see his father again. He returned to America after the Indian Wars of 1622 in the Jamestown area, during which Opikankanoff killed off 60-70% to 70 of the settlers there, including, very probably, Thomas Rolfe's father, John Rolfe, at the Bermuda Hundred, where many colonists were killed. Thomas Rolfe's name does not appear again in Virginia until the Second Indian Wars in Virginia, in 1644, during which time he was put in charge of a fort, and ended up fighting and killing the same Indians who bore relation to him. With regard to Captain Smith and New England, in spite of all his troubles at Jamestown, Smith, as he says, liked Virginia well. The remainder of his life was devoted to the furtherance of colonization in the New World. No jealousy kept him from an enthusiastic interest in the welfare of the Virginia colony. He was quick to rejoice over its growing prosperity. Henceforth, we see him in the meetings of the Virginia Company, exciting merchants through a desire for gain to adventure voyages exploring the coast of North Virginia, which at that time extended all the way up to what we now call, thanks to Smith, New England, writing books and pamphlets to draw attention to the American colonies and traveling over England selling these works. After the failure of the colony, of the Plymouth Company in Maine, and the dreary picture of the New England coast given by the colonists, Captain Smith was the first to again attract attention to this part of the New World. He set sail in March 1614 with two vessels fitted out at the expense of some London merchants for the purpose of catching whales or discovering gold mines, and if these failed, of returning with a cargo of fish and furs. Precious metal was not to be found, and whale fishing was pronounced 
a costly conclusion, for they saw many and spent much time in chasing them, but could not kill any. The best part of the fishing season was now gone, but the sailors spent the remainder of the summer catching and curing codfish. Meantime, Captain Smith, in a small boat with eight men, explored the coast from Penobscot to Cape Cod. He bought large quantities of furs from the Indians along the coast, paying them in trifles. From his observations, Smith made a map. He returned to England with a cargo of furs, leaving Captain Thomas Hunt in command of the second vessel to return by way of Spain, where he was to dispose of the fish. This man, after the departure of Captain Smith, decoyed twenty-four savages on board his vessel and sailed to Spain with them, selling them as slaves in the port of Malago. This infamous deed was perpetrated for the purpose of making the Indians so hostile as to prevent the establishment of a colony, and thus leave the profitable trade to such adventurers as himself. Smith reached England after having been gone some six months. He presented his map that he had made to Prince Charles, afterwards Charles II, who requested Smith to change the barbarous names by which its different capes, bays, and rivers were known. The young Prince Charles named Cape Anne, which Smith had called Cape Trabigzanda, after the Turkish lady who had loved him, changed Gosnell's name of Cape Cod to Cape James, changed Massachusetts River to Charles River, and made various other alterations, some of which remain to this day, while others are forgotten. Smith gave a lively description of the country. The Plymouth Company, as owners of the dead patent to this unregarded country, engaged Smith to undertake a voyage in their service. Soon after, the old Virginia Company made him an offer to take the command of a fleet of four vessels. He was, however, bound in honor to the Plymouth Company and refused. Meantime, a vessel which had sailed to the coast of New England in search of gold returned to report an entire failure in that means, and the Plymouth Company's ardor was dampened. Smith had promised to return to Plymouth about Christmas time. When he reached Plymouth in the early part of January 1615, with 200 pounds in his pocket, ready and eager again to set sail, his hopes were disappointed, and it was too late for him to accept the offer to establish a new colony in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Captain Smith was destined never again to set foot in the New World, though he lived many years after this, but he was always at work for the furtherance of his project. To him, New England owes its name. In his writing, Smith dilates upon the fine fishing along the coast of this country. He says that fish are to be had in abundance, observing but their seasons. But if a man will go at Christmas to gather cherries in Kent, though there be plenty in summer, he may be deceived. So have these plenties each here their season. Smith became the biggest promoter of colonization in New England of anyone alive in those times. Notwithstanding the failure of the Plymouth Company to fulfill their engagement with Captain Smith, he still labored hard to accomplish his object. After a labyrinth of trouble, Smith was furnished with two vessels by some friends, assisted by Sir Fernando Gorges. Smith had planned to plant a colony with but sixteen men. He had indeed wished for a much larger number with which to begin his settlement, but, says Smith, rich men for the most part are grown to that dotage through their pride in their wealth, as though there were no accident could end it or their lives. He must therefore content himself with a colony of sixteen, and he believed that, 
through his friendship with some of the Indians of the New England coast and his experience at Jamestown, he might still succeed. He set sail in March 1615 to set up a new colony in New England. He had gone but 120 leagues when he was separated from his other vessel and lost his mast in a storm. He was forced to return under a jury-rigged mast to Plymouth, England, while the other vessel continued her course and returned in August with a profitable cargo. Captain Smith was not, however, to be deterred by accidents. He immediately set sail again in a bark of sixty tons burden, accompanied by his sixteen colonists. This time they were chased by pirates. Their pursuers had thirty-six guns and Captain Smith's vessel but four. His crew begged him to surrender, but this he refused to do until he could do so on fair conditions. He vowed that he would sink rather than be ill-used by the pirates, he having gone through that years previous. The pirates' men were astonished that a bark of sixty tons with but four guns should higgle about the terms of surrender. When it became known that Smith was the captain of the vessel, it was found that many of the pirates had been soldiers under him, probably in the Turkish wars. They had run away from Tunis with this vessel. They were now destitute of provision and in combustion among themselves, as was written. They offered their command to Captain Smith, but he declined the leadership of these mutinous adventurers. His unfortunate bark, having escaped this danger again, fell in with the pirates. This time the enemy consisted of two French vessels. Captain Smith had much ado to force his men to fight. He at last told them that he would blow up his ship rather than yield while he had powder left. So, to use his own expression, the ships went together by the ears, and the bark at last escaped her pursuers, in spite of their shot. Near Flores, Captain Smith's vessel was met by four French privateers who said they had a commission from their king to take Portugals, Spaniards, and pirates. They called upon Captain Smith to come aboard them and show his papers. This he did after many fair promises on their part. He was no sooner aboard the French vessel, however, than he was detained, his own ship rifled, manned with French sailors, and his men divided among different vessels in the fleet. Within five or six days other ships joined them, and the fleet numbered eight or nine sail. They at last surrendered the English vessel to her sailors and returned much of her provision. The crew desired to return immediately to England, but Captain Smith resolved to keep on for his destination. Before he parted with the French fleet, the Admiral again sent for Smith. While he was on board the Admiral's ship, a sail was spied, and she went in chase. Meantime, the mutinous part of Smith's crew set sail for England in the night, leaving him on the French vessel in his cap, breeches, and waistcoat, as the narrative says, his arms having been left aboard his own vessel, where the sailors divided them among themselves. Captain Smith led a life of excitement aboard the French ship. The Admiral's vessel was separated from the others of the fleet in a storm. While she lay off the Azores watching for prizes, Smith occupied himself in writing a narrative of his last voyages. They were soon afterward chased by an English pirate with twelve guns and thirty men, nearly starved. During this fight, Captain Smith was imprisoned in the gun room. When the two vessels came to a parley, the English endeavored to procure relief from the French, who as usual made fair promises in order to get them in their power. When they found the English pirates were ready to defend themselves to the last, they resolved to barter provision with them. 
While they were thus occupied, they received some shot from a small vessel. The next fight was with a small English fishing smack. During this engagement, Captain Smith was confined in the cabin. From this station, he could see the captain robbed of all his valuables and half his cargo of fish. His poor clothes were auctioned at the mainmast, and their remains did not amount to seven pence apiece to the pillagers. The next capture was a Scotch ship. Fortunately for her, she was not yet loaded, and the French did not get much from her. They next descried four vessels and stood after them. These vessels furred their sails and awaited the approach of the French vessel. But, says Captain Smith with evident exultation, our French spirits were content only to perceive they were English red crosses. A short time after this, the French ship chased four Spanish vessels coming from the West Indies. When Spaniards were to be fought, Captain Smith was released and ordered to assist, and with an Englishman's hatred of Spain, he no doubt fought the Spaniards with some relish. For four or five hours, the English fought the Spanish ships, tearing their sides, says Smith, with many a shot betwixt wind and weather, yet not daring to board them. We lost them, for which all the sailors ever after hated the captain as a professional coward. A poor little Brazilian vessel was next chased. She was captured after a short fight with fourteen or fifteen, the better half, of her crew wounded. She was plundered of seventy chests of sugar, a hundred hides, and seventy thousand silver coins. The plunderers soon met after a Dutch ship. They entrapped the captain aboard under the pretense of showing his commission, and then captured his vessel, just like they'd done with Smith. She was manned with French sailors, who took occasion in the night to run off with the vessel. In a day or two more they met a West Indian man-of-war. For one whole forenoon they fought her. They captured her, and she proved the richest prize of all. From her they took a large quantity of hides, cochineal, coffers of silver, money, and coffers containing the king of Spain's treasure, with pillage for many rich passengers. The pirates seemed now content. They'd often promised to set Captain Smith ashore on some island or send him home in the next ship they met. They had also promised him a large share of their plunder. On their return voyage from France, Smith was put into the little vessel loaded with sugar. This was separated from the admiral in a storm. She was once hailed by two West Indiamen. When they were answered with the sign of France, the vessels went on their way with a parting broadside. Arriving at France, Smith was detained a prisoner in the harbor of Rochelle. He was now accused of being the English captain who had destroyed the French colony at Mount Desert and was threatened with imprisonment or a worse mischief. That English captain had actually been Argall, the same man who had kidnapped Pocahontas, the same man who had sailed her and that company to England, and the same man who had talked John Rolfe into returning to Jamestown while leaving his son behind to be educated in England. Captain Samuel Argall was a true bum and always had his reasons for anything he did. There's much that my portion of this story does not relate about his treacheries. Getting back to Smith, he took the first occasion to escape from France. A severe storm came on which drove all on board under hatches. The night was very dark. Smith watched for his opportunity and left the vessel in a little boat. He had but a half pike for a paddle. The wind was strong, the waves high, and Captain Smith drifted out to sea from the port of Rochelle. For twelve hours he worked away in his little boat, 
bailing out water on a night when the coast was strewn with wrecks. He had last reached a marshy island, nearly drowned and suffering from cold and hunger. He was found here by some hunters. The admiral's ship, meantime, had been wrecked, the captain and half his company, with much of the plunder lost. Smith pawned the little boat for means to reach Rochelle. Here he lodged a complaint with the judge of the admiralty, supported by some of the sailors as witnesses. We do not learn that he got anything more than good words and fair promises, with some paper certifying to the truth of his story, which he presented to the British ambassador of Bordeaux. He received great kindness on all hands, especially from the good lady Chinois, who bountifully assisted him. Captain Smith returned to England to find that he had been claimed dead by his mutinous sailors. He took measures to punish the ringleaders. Meanwhile, back in Jamestown, John Rolfe, who was as fond of novel experiments in agriculture as he was in marriage, is said to have been the pioneer tobacco planter of Virginia. The raising of tobacco paid the planters so well that for many years there was a constant temptation to neglect the planting of sufficient corn for food. In consequence of scarcity in the colony during the year 1616, the Chickahominy Indians were called upon to furnish a tribute of grain according to their treaty. They refused, however, and Yardley, with some 100 of his best shot, marched into their country. Here he was received with contempt. The Indians said he was only Dale's man. They had paid Dale their tribute, but would not pay him. A skirmish ensued in which twelve Indians were killed and as many made prisoner. These were ransomed with corn, and the Indians were glad to rid themselves of the Englishmen by loading their boats. Powhatan was growing old, and he began to fear his brother Opikankanov. This Indian was as ambitious and influential as Powhatan, while he was younger and very popular with Indians and whites. Since Opichapan was both old and decrepit, Powhatan was the only obstacle between him and the chief dominion among the Indians. This wily old chief had never loved the English any too well. He had on every occasion refused to enter or approach the white settlements. He would not even go to Jamestown to attend the wedding of his daughter. Powhatan now dreaded lest his ambitious brother should betray him into the hands of the English. He therefore retired to a distance from Jamestown, devoting himself to warding off this danger. The old chief expressed great sorrow when he heard of the death of Pocahontas. He was, however, pleased that her son was living, and both he and Opikankanov said they'd like to see him. When Tomokomo returned, Powhatan called upon him for the number of people in England. Count, said Tomokomo, the stars in the sky, the leaves on the trees, and the sand upon the seashore, for such is the number of the people in England. Captain Argall was now governor of the colony, and John Rolfe was his secretary. Argall found Jamestown on his arrival from England neglected, and the streets planted with tobacco. Poor little town was never destined to be great. Sir Thomas Dale had before this preferred to live at Bermuda Hundred. Virginians were fast becoming a widely scattered community of planters. Its situation was unhealthy, and much of its site has been washed away by the river. There still remain some graves and a church tower built of brick brought all the way from England. In the year 1618, Powhatan died. Opichapan normally succeeded him, but Opikankanoff was far too ambitious and popular to remain in a subordinate position. 
the power fell really into his hands. When the English came to Virginia, Powhatan had long since established his reputation as a great warrior and could well afford to rest on his honors. But it was not so with Opikankanoff. Had the English known as much of Indian character as we do today, they would have feared the younger chief, who had yet a career to make, a reputation as a brave to gain. But Opikankanoff renewed the Treaty of Powhatan. The English proceeded to scatter their settlements wherever good land for the cultivation of tobacco was to be found, and Indians went in and out the planters' houses on peaceful and friendly terms. Their guard was down in Jamestown. Argyll's government, as you might expect, was unscrupulous. He was the first public officer in this new country to make money out of the public store. He seems to have been cruel as well as unprincipled. Bitter complaints were sent by the colonists to the company in England. Meantime, Lord Delaware, who had spent much money and time in the service of the company, again embarked with 200 emigrants to take into his own hand the government of the colony. Unfortunately, Lord Delaware died on the voyage. Some of the members of the company soon after sent Argall a very severe letter accusing him of many wrongs against the company and colonists. This was accompanied by a letter to Lord Delaware with many accusations against Argall. Owing to the death of Lord Delaware, both of these letters fell into Argall's hands. In October 1618, when the news of Lord Delaware's death reached England, Captain Yeardley was appointed governor, and before his departure was knighted and treated with a discourse from King James upon the duty of carrying religion to the Indians. Before he reached Virginia, however, Argall was gone, and it turned into the hands of friends his wrongfully acquired property, quite after the approved manner of public thieves in our time. Sir George Yeardley's government covered the most prosperous years that the colony had yet known. The first representative legislature held within the limits of the United States convened at Jamestown in 1619, exactly 400 years ago. The company had granted the colony an annual assembly of the governor and the council with two representatives from each plantation. The assembly met in the chancel of the Jamestown Church and, among other things, made the following laws. First, against drunkenness, that any man found drunk was to be reproved privately by the minister. If the offense were committed a second time, he was to be reproved publicly. The third time, he must lie in bolts for twelve hours and pay a fine. And if he still persisted, he was to suffer such severe punishment as the governor and council should decide upon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The company resolved to provide wives for the colonists in order to bind them permanently to Virginia. One widow and eleven maids were sent over in 1621. The company in England wished it to be understood that these women had been chosen with great care and came with good recommendations. They were to be lodged and provided for of diet till they be married. If this did not quickly take place, however, they were to be put to several householders that have wives till they can be provided of husbands. 
Moreover, a price was set upon wives. Each man must pay a hundred and twenty pounds of best-leaf tobacco to defray the expense of his wife's importation, and that there might be no dead loss to the company if one of the girls should die, the expense of her passage must be divided among the husbands of the others. Pains must also be taken, lest there should be any cheating in the quality of the tobacco. Shortly after, thirty-eight more maids and young women were exported by the London Company, with the hope that they would be received with the same Christian piety and charity. Thirty-eight brides for thirty-eight brothers. In 1621, when Sir Francis Wyatt became governor, the peace with Opikankanoff was ratified, and that chief seemed to the English to show decided evidences of a religious inclination. The colony of Virginia had grown and increased, spreading its arms wherever fertile land was to be found. Eighty peaceful plantations lay widely scattered and almost entirely unprotected. Totally unsuspected, the religiously inclined Opikenkanov laid his plans for an extermination of all the whites. Two days before the massacre, the savages guided a white man safely through the woods. Up to the very hour appointed for the work to begin, Indians lounged tranquilly about the plantations according to their habit. Within the space of an hour or two, more than three hundred men, women, and children fell at the hands of the savages, who burned their houses, butchered their cattle, and mangled their dead bodies. One Indian servant, out of affection for his master, had revealed the plot on the eve of its accomplishment. By his means, Jamestown and the adjacent settlements were warned in the early morning, and thus a much more dreadful destruction was avoided. Great was the consternation in England when the news arrived. The company no more advised a tender and kindly treatment of the savages, finally. The colonists now hated the Indians with a bitter animosity. They wreaked vengeance on them. They hunted them. They kept great mastiffs and bloodhounds to be set upon them. They averred that the dogs took the naked tan savages for no other than wild beasts, while the Indians themselves feared them worse than their old devil which they worshipped, supposing them to be a new and worse kind of devils than their own. Captain Smith was fired with a desire to fight these savages and protect the colony in which he felt so warm an interest. He offered his services to the company to lead a band of 130 men to Virginia, promising to make a flying camp with which he would so torment the Indians as either to bring them into subjection or force them to leave the country. He also planned to make such explorations as would bring the two maps of Virginia and New England together. Many favored his project, but others of the company considered that the expense would be too great, and so were inclined to let the planters take care of themselves. Smith says he was given to understand that he would be allowed to undertake such an expedition at his own expense and might have the plunder as a reward. But he says truly that the plunder to be procured from Indian villages would not amount to 20 pounds in 20 years. The massacre of 1622 had been a great drawback to the Virginia colony. The planters drew together upon some few plantations for safety, and it was some time before the Virginians gained a feeling of security and Virginia's prosperity was to return. Opikankanoff was a savage of the savages, crafty, cruel, and proud. Twenty years later, in 1644, he instituted another massacre of the ever-encroaching settlers. It was supposed to be nearly a hundred years old and very feeble, but his fierce ambition had by no means subsided with oncoming age. 
He led his men, and the deadly work was most destructive where he was in person. But no resistance to white settlement could avail for the Indians of Virginia. Opikenkanoff was taken prisoner. The once straight and active warrior was now bent and emaciated. He was so weak that he was carried on a litter from place to place. The muscles of his eyelids were paralyzed so that he could not raise them. He was carried to Jamestown and well used, but was naturally an object of curiosity. Hearing one day the sound of many footsteps, the old chief commanded his attendants to raise his eyelids. He saw himself surrounded by a crowd of people curious to see the famous Opie Kankanoff. He sent for Sir William Berkeley, the governor, at that time. Had it been my fortune, said the proud old man, to have taken Sir William Berkeley prisoner, I would not have meanly exposed him as a show to my people. Soon after this, the old chief was shamefully shot in the back by his keeper, no doubt in revenge for his massacre of some family of women and children. Captain Smith's travels and adventures seemed to have come to an end while he was yet young. He lived to see successful colonies thriving in the two lands of his affection, Virginia and New England. Had these perished, he would no doubt have buckled on his armor again and planted anew. During the later years of his life, he published many books, and a general history of Virginia appeared, under his supervision, but chiefly written by others, and edited by the Reverend Dr. Simons. Of Smith's explorations, Robertson says in his famous History of America, After sailing 3,000 miles in a paltry vessel, ill-fitted for such an extensive navigation, during which the hardships to which he was exposed, as well as the patience with which he endured, and the fortitude with which he surmounted them, equal whatever is related, of the most famous Spanish discoverers in their most daring enterprises. He returned to Jamestown. He brought with him an account of that large portion of the American continent now, in 1774 when that was written, comprehended in the two provinces of Virginia and Maryland, so full and exact that after the progress of information and research for a century and a half, his map exhibits no inaccurate view of both countries and is the original upon which the subsequent delineations and descriptions have been formed. Of the private character of our great captain, we may judge by what one of Smith's former soldiers said of him. I never knew a warrior yet but thee, from wine, tobacco, debts, dice, and oaths, so free. Captain Smith was in his own day, and until our time, honored as a hero of Virginia. But there is a pedantic pride which loves to show its knowledge by unhorsing the heroes of history. In our own time, the writings of Wingfield, Newport, and others, recently brought to light, have been used to discredit the narratives of Smith. Men have even assailed him with bitterness, and a recent writer intimates that he was a Gascon and a beggar, though the same author thinks that Virginia ought to erect a monument to his fame. Men were not so careful of historical accuracy in the days of James I as they are today. History, in our sense of the word, was hardly known in English literature. The public expected travelers to please them with well-varnished stories. That Smith may have allowed his imagination too much play in setting down romantic facts from memory isn't improbable. It was the bad fashion of travelers in the 16th and 17th centuries. But the statements of Newport, Wingfield, and Ratcliffe, and by now you know their characters, all enemies to Captain John Smith, are certainly not entitled to even half the weight of Smith's writings and actions. For, on any theory, Wingfield was grossly incompetent, 
Newport was as helpless as a porpoise when he set food on land, not efficient in exploring and foolish in negotiating, while Captain Radcliffe was an adventurer sailing under the false flag of an assumed name. And I said I would briefly discuss Wingfield's manner of death. Wingfield was thought to have abused some Indian women, and upon his capture in December of 1609, he was boiled alive in a pot, while Indian women scraped skin from his face and body, using the sides of shells. Indians of that day, and for centuries after, were not averse to slow torture of their victims, and Wingfield died a hard death. It is said that when Captain Smith died in England, he had been living nearly broke in a small flat in London. His only possessions were to be found in one trunk. What happened to that trunk was not known. John Smith died on June 21, 1631, in London. He was buried in 1633 in the south aisle of St. Sepulchre without Newgate Church, Holborn Viaduct, London. The church is the largest parish church in the city of London, dating back to 1137. And Captain Smith is commemorated in the south wall of the church by a stained glass window. The actual location of his grave is unknown thanks to a German bombing raid that destroyed a good number of old graves and knocked down the identifying gravestones, as well as doing a lot of damage to the church grounds. In New Hampshire, a Captain John Smith monument currently lies in disrepair off the coast of New Hampshire on Star Island, a part of the Isles of Shoals. The original monument was built in 1864 to commemorate the 250th anniversary of John Smith's visit to what he named Smith's Isles. It was a tall pillar set on a triangular base atop a series of steps surrounded by granite supports and a sturdy iron railing. At the top of the original obelisk were three carved faces representing the severed heads of three Turks that Smith lopped off while in combat during his stint as a soldier in Transylvania. In 1914, the New Hampshire Society of Colonial Wars partially restored and rededicated the monument for the 300th anniversary celebration of his historic visit. The monument had weathered so badly in the harsh coastal winters that the inscription in the granite had worn away. I'm not sure of the condition of that monument today, and hope that someone from that area could contact us at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and let us know what the condition of the John Smith Monument is in New Hampshire. We're sure appreciate it, and after 400 years, it would certainly be a good time now to set up a fund to raise money to repair it. I think we owe it to the man who gave New England its name. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. And if you enjoyed this story, let others know. Help friends and relatives to subscribe to us, please, at Apple Podcasts or hosts like Player.fm or Stitcher.com. That really helps our show as well as reviews. And join us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries at 1001 Radio Days or at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Lots going on at all three, as well as here, and always a good story. And speaking of stories, about that story I've been carrying around in my back pocket for a few years. That couple opens the trunk to find his pocket watch, some personal notes he had written, and a map showing the location of where he had hidden what wealth he had accumulated at a location outside of London. And that begins a treasure hunt fraught with danger and intrigue. Thanks to all of you for joining us and for your reviews and for sharing our show and for subscribing. 
We'll be back real soon. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Buenos dias world from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.